Good morning. Man, meet and greet time must have been amazing. Such a wonderful little petri dish we have here now that we've all spread our germs. That's great. No, I'm kidding. I, I recently had a friend tell me, man, I would love meet and greet time if it weren't for the people. I quote, I quote, that is verbatim, his exact words. And I laughed. I thought, man, I just thank God because this is the perfect illustration for the sermon I'm, I'm going to preach next Sunday. And it was so perfect. Uh, but you've heard that phrase, if it weren't for the people. You've heard that. I've, I've heard ministers, I mean, not in front of their congregations. This is like at conferences and counseling sessions. Man, I'd love ministry. Ministry would be so great if it weren't for the people. That's what they say, if it weren't for the people. I've heard people say this about church. Oh, yeah, I'm a, I had church at my house this Sunday. Oh, why? Oh, that's impossible, but how did you do that? How did you, tell me about how that happened. Well, I'd love church if it weren't for the people. And they're joking, kind of, but why do people joke and use that phrase, if it weren't for the people? Why do they say that? Because people can be messy, People can be, have, have you ever been around someone that didn't think exactly like you? Isn't that miserable? Have you ever experienced that? Oh, I couldn't imagine if I had to deal with people that thought differently than I did and thought it had different priorities than me. Oh, I could never, I could never live in that scenario, you know. But people are messy. People have bad days. You ever, you ever been around someone that, had, that was having a bad day and you thought, you know what, I'm just going to avoid them? Did you ever think that? I'm just going to avoid them, right? Right? Some of us are married. You know, they, we get it. You know, I'm just... Have, people, when they are different, there's disagreements, when they're having a bad day, when they're not their best self, when they're not their healthiest self, man, it's hard to be around people. When, uh, when they're like that, isn't it? That's just true. And now that we're thinking about the holiday season, we're thinking about Thanksgiving, we're thinking about Christmas, most of us, there's a lot of joy in this room. If I were to tell you, think about your favorite things about Thanksgiving time, seeing family members. If you're sad at all, you're sad because you're not going to see someone, most likely. And you just think about the fun family times, but, you know, almost everybody has that one family member that if it weren't for that family member, Thanksgiving dinner would be so much easier, you know? We, we have those realities in our lives. And the question is, what do you do with that? Do you just avoid people? Do you just leave them alone? No. You can't avoid people. And what's wonderful is God has principles that he's given to the church. This is how I want you to interact with each other especially when it's difficult, especially when the other person is needy, especially when the other person isn't doing well. This could be on a team. This could be on like a ministry team. This could be in your family. This is, this is in the church. The context of 1 Thessalonians 5 is the letter that we're going to look at. Paul was writing to a church family, not very different than ours. He's writing to the church family. He gives them a lot of theology, answering some of the questions they had, dealing with some of the issues they had. 
And toward the end of his letter, he, he switches the topic. He kind of pivots and he begins in chapter 5, verse 12, a new section which I'm going to read. Uh, why don't you turn there with me? First Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm going to read in verse 12. We're not really going to preach on verse 12 and 13. We're going to get to 14. But he begins this new section in verse 12. He says, or he writes, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, and to regard them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So when he says now in verse 12, he's starting a new section. This is his way of like a new paragraph, a new chapter in a, in a short book. He begins this this way and he says, now we're asking you, brothers and sisters, remember we're family, we're Christian family, we're asking you the leadership in your church. Respect them, regard them, they're going to correct you, they're going to admonish you, that means like to warn you, they're going to challenge you, some of them are going to step on your toes. Respect them and regard them highly in love. He begins with leadership because everything falls and rises and falls on leadership. And he begins with this new section of the, of the letter. Now listen, leadership is really important. You need to love them and regard them and take care of them almost because they're taking care of you and they're laboring in the Lord for you. And be at peace among yourselves. Be, have peace. And then the next sentence, he moves from leadership, which he begins with all the time, Paul does. He begins with leadership. Then he goes to the church family. So he's no longer talking about the elders you know, so, sometimes considering the deacons, the servants among you, they're, they're leaders, kind of like elected, nominated, selected leaders that are leading in order to serve. He moves from there and just says, now this is how, how you guys are treating one another. In verse 14, and we exhort you. That word for exhort means to strongly urge. This is, this is Paul's way. This is this translation's way of saying, hey, and I'm begging you. We are begging you, right? Paul's not writing this letter by himself. He's, he's always on a team. Now, he's been by himself before, but he kind of complained about that. He's like, everyone left me. He wasn't meant to be by himself. So he says, we. He says, we exhort you, brothers and sisters. And then he gives four commands. Warn those who are idle. Comfort the discouraged. Help the weak. And be patient with everyone. In this passage, he gives us four commands. Sometimes it's going to be difficult to be around one another. And so he gives these commands. This is how you handle these situations. And the first command, the first way that in this new part of his letter, if you read the rest of 1 Thessalonians, you see how he's talking to the church family. This is how I want you guys to act with each other as a family. This is how I want you to be brothers and sisters. This is how I want you to love one another. So he begins with these four commands, and he begins with, warn the idol. Warn the idol. That word warn, that word that he uses, means to instruct, to warn, to admonish. Some of your translation uses the word admonish. We don't use that very often. Uh, It means to advise someone concerning the dangerous consequences of their actions. This is to warn somebody. And so the idea and principle is there will be times when you have to speak up and correct one another. 
there, there's going to be times, he begins with, now listen, it's not always going to be easy. You can't be passive. How, how many of you would love to just walk into a situation or walk into a group or be around other people and there's no need to correct anybody, right? I dream of that every morning. I wake up and I just want to walk into the kitchen and my kids are eating their breakfast and they're like, oh, I'm just, why are you in such a hurry? Because I'm just going to get to my schoolwork. I'm just going to do my work before mommy has to tell me to do it. I'm just going to right now. I'm like, why? And then you washed your hands? That's amazing. Just no correction needed. I just want to live in a world where all of us are doing exactly what we ought to do and we can all just look at each other and wave and smile and, and we can go, you know what? My brother right here, he's doing everything he needs to do. I don't have to say anything. And my sister, she, there's no need to say anything, to correct in any way. That's what we want, but that's not reality. And so Paul begins this with the reality. Listen, you are going to have to warn one another sometimes. You're going to have to correct one another. You're going to have to admonish one another. You can't be passive. If you're going to be a real family, if you're going to really love one another, you're just going to have to bite the bullet sometimes there's going to be a need for you to correct one another. And one of those times when you need to correct one another is when you're idle. He says, warn the idle. This word is a derivative of a, another Greek word that means to do nothing. This, this word, ataktos, it means to do nothing. Some of your translations will translate it, warn those who are lazy. Does anybody have the word lazy in their translation? Just curious. I don't know if anybody's using it. Yeah, some of you. Okay. It, it can mean warn those who are lazy. The, these are people who are, are going their own way in a disorderly way. They're not correcting. They're not, they're not willing to be disciplined. They don't have disciplines in their lives. Imagine every January we do a special series in the month of January, and we call it Habits of Grace. These are like spiritual disciplines we have here. And we focus on the habit of grace in different ways throughout the year. And so this next January, we're going to be thinking about repentance, the discipline of repentance, of how to repent, what the Bible says about that. But every year we do that because we all need to grow in our walk with God. We all need to be sanctified. We need to change. We need, we need God to be helping us grow in different ways. And so... The idea of warn the idol is there are going to be some times where, where your brothers or sisters are going to be stuck in their ways. They're going to be idle. The main idea is it's, it's a person, a person is idle when they are choosing not to change. There will be times in your church family where the person next to you chooses not to change, not willing to develop necessary disciplines. There may be a a slide for this word, this word idol. Um, they're not willing to develop disciplines necessary to take next steps. They're not willing to embrace the next step that God is calling them to. And those are the idol. They're, they're not willing to change. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to change. I want to do things my way. I want to do it like we've always done it. I'm not willing to branch out. I'm not willing to grow. I'm not willing to expand my comfort zone. So Paul tells them, listen, you, if you're going to be a healthy family, you've got to embrace the truth that sometimes you're going to have to warn the idol. Sometimes you're going to get complacent. He's warning us, the church, against complacency. Complacency is a willful ignorance so you don't have to change. Just be complacent. 
the illustration that comes to mind is uh, the difference between a check engine light and the TPMS light. Um, one of those is really helpful. The other one, I'm convinced the devil inspired someone to make. That's the TPMS. If you don't know what the TPMS is, that, that, that's the tire pressure monitoring system. Uh, that's something that eventually breaks uh, in your car and you can't do anything about, and that light will just stay on. Uh, and it doesn't matter what you do. You have to buy a whole new tire with a whole new sensor in order to turn it off. And it's miserable. I hate it. Yeah, it's not fair. I, I've been driving with this light on for, I think, a year and a half now, maybe two years. And my tires are fine. You know, I can go, I can open my door, I can look at my four tires and say, huh, it's fine, turn off sensor, but you can't turn it off. There's no way to turn it off. Uh, you can get, I've heard, black electrical tape and put it over that little light. Uh, I'm just, I mean, some people have done that. That's all I'm saying. Uh, but the check engine light, that's different, isn't it? You can't just drive for a year and a half with the check engine light on. You know, I've tried. It does not work, right? You can't, yeah, yeah, you think so. It doesn't work, yeah. I thought it was the oil. I thought I just had a leak, and I'm like, no problem. And then uh, after my engine blew up on the interstate and I got off on an exit, the brakes were fine. I stopped. Uh, I mean, the, the car wasn't going to go anyway. It literally blew. Uh, but anyway, so uh, you can't drive with the check engine light on. Sometimes people don't realize that their check engine light is on, but they treat it like it's the TPMS light. To them, they don't see their blind spots, so they get out of their own car, look at their tires and say, ah, it's fine, and they keep on going about their day. And they don't realize that eventually their engine's going to blow up and they're not going anywhere. So you have to warn the idol. Uh, pastor Kyle wrote a song. He's so brilliant. I love Pastor Kyle. We, we are so blessed to have a pastor like him. Uh, he, wrote the, he wrote the song entitled Complacency. There's a lot of other lyrics to it. It's really great. The words are really good. But in part of it, he says, I know that it's time we parted ways and leave behind those lazy days. Complacency is about laziness. Idol is about laziness. It's about not willing to change. Why can't they see your fading loyalty? your arrogance unnerving, and your promises empty. Complacency, I just have to say, I'm going to tell my friends to stay away. And he wrote those words about complacency because complacency is one of those pet sins in the church that we kind of just accept. One of the main reasons why churches die, there was a great book written uh, not too long ago, but years ago, called The Autopsy of a Deceased Church. Uh, a network of church people uh, conducted a survey, and they, uh, they surveyed 1,000 churches in America. And they found out what were the common characteristics for a church that is dying, that's no longer reaching people, baptizing people, people are getting saved, the church is thriving in ministry, people are glad to be there. When does that happen? They found out the number one reason for that was complacency. The church started saying, what about me, me, my, my tradition? I don't want to change. Let's just keep doing this forever. Let's not change or do anything. Oh, no, no, we just need it. That was the number one reason why churches started declining. Well, first they plateau, then they decline. And then if they have enough money in the bank and they have a few families that love it, that church will really be dead like a zombie walking dead for 20 years, some of them. And it just dies. And, and it's because they wouldn't take the warning of idleness. 
in their minds, there was a few. That's why it died. A lot of the churches, a lot of the Christians in it that thought, no, we need to be on mission. We need to believe in the Great Commission. We need to do something. We don't need to be stuck in our ways. Sometimes we do need to change. Those people left and went to other churches. But the church dies, and it dies mainly because this, this warning, warn those who are idle. But sometimes they don't want to hear it, and that's the idol. They don't want to hear the warning. And Paul said, listen, you need to warn the idol. What happens when a church doesn't follow this command? What if you took 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14 and switched it? You took all the positives, all the warnings, and you did the opposite. What if a church or a believer decided, I'm going to do the opposite of 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14? This is what they'd say about warn the idol. Instead of warning the idol, you tolerate the idol. That's all. Just tolerate idleness. Sadly, this is some, what some churches do. Some churches, they don't expect the people to do anything out of their comfort zone. They don't challenge them. They don't push them to evangelism and making disciples and reaching their neighbors and going to the community and taking those risks. They don't warn you, as long as you do two things, you're fine. Here are the two things. As long as you pay the tithe and affirm the doctrine. Just be a consumer. As long as you pay money to the church, and as long as you don't argue about the things we hold dear, some of those are traditions, they just don't say it, it's not on their website. As long as you do that, just sit here. Just come every Sunday and be a consumer. And Paul's warning them, don't, don't be that way. If you want to have peace among yourselves, if your leaders are going to do what they're supposed to do, warn the idol. And all of us can be idle. All of us have times where we are just complacent, where we're comfortable, where we're not willing to change. And the Holy Spirit is always convicting us to be drawn to Him, to grow in our love for God and on our love for people, to grow in our making disciples, to investing more in our neighbors, to getting to know them, to, to caring about them, to genuinely love them, to love our community. That's what Christ has called the church to be, the light and the salt, not a bubble, not where we're just about ourselves. That's the number one characteristics where a church starts dying. Just statistically true and biblically understandable. Makes perfect sense. Warn the idol. But what kind of warnings was he thinking of? You know, if you take Paul's letters and you take the Gospels, what Jesus said, what kind of warnings did God give to his people? Not lost people, but to the church, to believers. What kind of warnings did he give us so that we wouldn't be complacent, so that we wouldn't lack disciplines? What kind of disciplines do you find in Paul's letters? Well, the number one discipline you find in the New Testament that's glaring is you have to get to know God through his word. Just like the admonishment from the Bereans who studied the scriptures for themselves, you have to get in the word. A couple years ago, we did one of the habits of grace was just scripture, getting to know God through his word. God has spoken. And we played that video. There was a study done. When people only read their Bibles for themselves, they read Scripture one day, two days, or three days a week, there was almost no change in their life. They weren't discipled. They were still struggling with sin. They felt distant from the church and from God. There was almost no spiritual life within them. They claimed to be believers, but they were very stagnant. They felt like they just were not lost, but kind of like a lost believer. They just felt stagnant. But once in the survey... Once people move to four days a week or more of reading the scripture, it shot up. It's like their relationship with God was stronger, their disciplines were stronger, their fellowship, their love within the church family. Everything grew 
The number one reason was because their own relationship with God. They were in the word. They were listening to it. They were reading it four days or more a week. And so our leaders, our elders, we, we ought to be always encouraging you. If you want to grow personally, don't wait till Sunday morning. Get in the Bible every day. Get in the Bible. Hear from God. Read it. Most of you, because of your jobs and resources and your own family situation, you will likely only spend about an hour a week studying in the Bible deeply, like, you know, under, getting to know what the words mean and all that, but all of us can easily read the Bible every day, more than four days a week. All of us can take that scripture in, and we won't understand all of it, that's true, I don't understand all of it, but we keep taking it in, and we get to know God through his word, and we read about Jesus, and we ask questions, God, why did you do this? What does this mean? We need to grow in that way. Warn the idol. The reason why people aren't growing in that way is because of Netflix and Hulu and social media and Twitter and everything else, Facebook. Whatever's keeping you away from God that's just mindless things that are pulling you away, those things you need to be warned about. You need to know the consequences of staying away from God's word is going to leave you stagnant and empty because God created you to be with him. God created you to know him and to, to grow in your knowledge of him, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, like Peter writes. God created us to know him better, and you got to get in the word. You do not drift toward holiness and denying your fleshly desires. That's not what comes naturally. You do not drift toward holiness and growth. You drift toward distraction and distance and everything else that keeps you away from him. This is a discipline that will keep you out of idleness. Get into the word regularly. Get to know God regularly. Number two, pray constantly. Paul actually writes this in verse 17 of the same chapter. He writes this a little bit later. Keep up with your prayer life. Keep talking to God. Keep unloading your heart. Keep speaking to him. Get to know him. Read the scripture and pray at the same time. As you're reading, whatever you don't understand, pray. Say, God, I don't, I don't really know what this means. Get a good study Bible. Good study Bibles are so helpful. If you're the academic brainy type, the ESV study Bible. If you're not that way and you're just normal like the rest of us, then the, uh, the life application study Bible. There's so many good study Bibles that they give you notes that explain some of the passages and you could spend 15, 30 minutes a day just reading, taking it in, and it's great. So get to know him, pray as you're reading, pray constantly, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, and if there's any idleness that is just killing the American church, it's this. Make disciples. Teach others how to follow Christ. Invest in other people's lives. Show them what it looks like to pray and read and confess and apologize and repent and share your faith with someone. Show them. Show somebody. Take the time to do it. In the Great Commission, Matthew 28, Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Now, some people read that word. I, I highlighted it in yellow. Some people read the Great Commission like this. They delete what's in yellow. They say, Teaching them everything I have commanded you. So if you're going to make disciples, you just have to teach them what Jesus said. That's not what Jesus said. 
Jesus actually uses an extra verb here along with teaching to say, don't just tell them what I said, show them. Teach them how to observe it. That requires, you can't get that from a recording. You can't do that over the phone. To make disciples, you have to be in their life. It's life on life. It's in person. Teaching them to observe everything I have told you. That requires real life connection and community. If we're, gonna, if we're not going to be idle, that means we're working. We're doing things. We have disciplines. And one of the disciplines, other than reading and praying, walking with Christ, is sharing with someone else how to do it. This is how you do it. That takes time, that takes investment, that takes life connection. You cannot do that from a distance. Discipleship is not a distance learning activity. You've got to be there in person. So warn the idle, and next he reminds us, comfort the discouraged. You know, some people are going to be idle, and you're going to have to warn them, and other people are going to be discouraged, and you're going to have to help them. You're going to have to comfort them. That word comfort, paramuthemai, uh, paramuthemai, means to console or cheer. That word para in the beginning means near, like being close to someone, next to someone. That muthos word, is, which it's in the middle passive, that's why it's muthemai, but um, that word means to, it, it talks about speech. So that word, when he says comfort one another, he's giving two words in one. It's a compound word that means come near to someone and speak to them word that's going to encourage them. Speak words that are going to fill them up, that are going to put courage within them. So there's two parts of comfort. Comfort requires closeness that helps the person know they're not alone. The first need that was ever had you can find in Genesis in the very beginning. It was not good for man to be alone. Loneliness, isolation, being alone was the first need ever present in humanity. And when people are discouraged, they need you to be there with them. You have to come near. And you have to give them words that fill them up. Words that make them feel better. Now, I know that sounds subjective, like, oh, are we supposed to be people pleasers and we just tell people what they want to hear? No. Don't tell people what they want to hear. Tell people what God wants them to hear. Encourage, comfort the discouraged, or your translation may say faint-hearted. That word for discouraged is also a compound word. It's oligopsukos which sounds fun, but it's from two words, oligos and suke. Oligos means few or small. It's a common Greek word in this language. It means like small. And then suke is the word for soul. This word means like small soul. Comfort those who just feel like, man, I've got nothing left. I just feel empty. My soul is about this big right now and it's about to disappear. I'm, I'm about to give up. I am about to quit. I don't have anything left in me. Deep inside, internally, I might be able to lift weights, but I can't lift what's going on. I have no inner strength left. I am about to give up. The discouraged, the, the little soul. It describes a person who's so down they feel like, uh, like they could just die. It's like they have no life left in them. Great illustration for this keeping with the theme of the engine light, the check engine light, is the fuel gauge. Uh, has anyone ever had the pleasure of riding with someone who didn't check the fuel gauge and you, you ran out of gas? 
Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? Love your enemies, right? Don't slander them. Uh, we went on a trip to Atlanta from Mississippi. We went, to, we went to Atlanta. I was in a van with a bunch of other college students, and the college director guy, the cool guy, the next church planter kind of guy, skinny jeans, cool hair, everything, he's driving. And one of the girls that was with us, I've known him for years, and she, she kept saying, hey, I think we're going to need gas because he's done this before. And I just kept thinking, hey, sister, just chill, okay? We're going to get there. I've never been broken down on the side of the road because of a lack of gas. Come on, come on. We ran out of gas. And, uh, and uh, you know, we don't hate him. We don't hate him. We just didn't love him because... <laughs> We were on our way to a conference, and we were on the side, and he kept getting warned, hey, you're running out of gas. Um, sometimes people are running out of gas, and they don't know it. Sometimes, most times, people are running out of gas, and they know it. And uh, it's up to us to, to notice that, to comfort the, the discouraged. One passage in the Bible that I've, I, I still learn from, one of my favorite passages in all the Scripture, I feel like I... God is a mystery to me in some ways, and this passage is always, I always feel like it's drawing me closer to, to know who he is and what he's like. But in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus, on the worst night of his life, was discouraged. And he said this to his friends, his closest friends, his best friends. Then he said to them, my soul, that word suke, that word soul, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Hey, best friends, I feel like I could die. I feel so down, I could just die. And then he says, would you guys just stay awake and pray with me? Would you comfort me? Would you be close and near to me? Would you pray to the Father with me? Would you help me know that I'm not alone and I'm not here by myself I feel like I could just die. That's what the Son of God told his best friends. That's, that's one window in all the Bible. There's a few windows, Genesis 6, Matthew 26, a few windows that just confuse people because we think of God as like invincible and that he's never experienced any kind of anything, not just perfect. And, uh, and we read this passage and we go, how could Jesus say, I just feel like I could die. My soul is sorrowful to the point of death. And what did his disciples do? Did they comfort him? No. They fell asleep. He goes to them after they've fallen asleep, and you can hear it in his words. You can feel the emotions. Couldn't you stay up with me for just one hour? I need you so desperately right now. Couldn't you encourage me? I needed a close friend. I needed my best friends to be with me. Couldn't you pray for me for one hour? Nope. He goes and prays. He comes back. They're asleep again. Jesus made it clear, as discouraged as he was, he found his strength in God alone, in the strength of the Holy Spirit. But the disciples in that story were not the ones who did right. Jesus is opening his life to you, saying, I know what it's like when you feel small-souled, discouraged, empty. I know what it's like when your friends abandon you and they're not there for you and you feel like you're all alone and you just want to throw in the towel. I know exactly what that feels like. And Jesus knows how to comfort the discouraged and faint-hearted because he's experienced that. 
And Paul reminds us, comfort the discouraged. Be there for them. Encourage the faint-hearted. They need you. Everyone in this room has moments of discouragement. Sometimes you just feel empty. And God wants us to be encouragers to one another. God wants us to fill one another up. This, this takes looking at one another in a different way than just passively letting them go by. Notice your friends. Invest in your friends. This is why we have small groups in our church, because the church is too big. It's, this group is too big for one of you to know and love everyone in this room personally. I know that's what's expected of the pastor, even though that's impossible. But none of you alone can love deeply everyone in here. And that's why, just like Jesus, who had hundreds of disciples, who had 70 that he sent out two by two, had 12 disciples, but he had these three that he was closest to. He had his close friends. You need that too. You need your close friends. You need to be in a small group. You need to have Christian community around you because you're not going to get comfort from a distance. You don't need a wave. You need a hug. You need someone that knows, someone that's there. It may require discernment, how to comfort one another, but it always requires sacrifice. And we need to sacrifice for one another to warn the idle and comfort the discouraged. And number three, help the weak. Paul writes, we exhort you, brothers and sisters, help the weak. That word for help is used in two ways. It means to cling to, to hold fast to, to be devoted to. It it speaks of a strong attachment to someone. And it means to have a strong interest in someone. That's why we translate it help. But if you were to translate this word like it's normally used, Paul was saying not just help the weak, but have a strong interest and be attached to the person next to you when they're weak. Make a conscious effort to really be involved and to love them and care about them. And that word for weak is unique too. That word for weak is actually a compound word. It means no strength. It's the the idea for no and the word for strength put together. No strength. Sometimes the people around you, maybe this Thanksgiving, maybe Christmas, for sure in this church, maybe today, the people around you, you may not know it right now, but they may have no strength left. And Paul says, help them. Lift them up. Fill them up. You have strength sometimes that other people don't have. And use your strength for their benefit. Help the weak. The illustration comes to mind of a, of a car that's overwhelmed. Um, yeah, right? Super illegal. Super illegal. Other states, they, other countries, they allow this, right? You know, some of us are driving around like that. And we know it's true. Sometimes we feel like, I don't know what to do, right? You know, sometimes it takes encouragement just saying the right words, just being there, a prayer, a hug. Sometimes it says, hey, you can put some of that weight. I'll help you carry it. Let me get that for you. Let me help carry some of that. And it takes you and me stopping along our normal path, things we want to do, stopping whatever we may be doing to say, hey, let me, let me help you with that. If you want to be a church family, help the weak. Carry some of the burden. Carry some of that load. Because everybody has weaknesses. Sometimes with weakness, we, we push people away. 
But this verse tells us, don't push people away who are weak. Help them. So warn the idle, comfort the discouraged, and help the weak. And finally, number four, be patient with everyone. So discerning, so helpful in God's inerrant, inspired word, his infallible word, he gives it to us. Sometimes people are going to be idle. Sometimes people are going to be faint-hearted or discouraged. Sometimes people are going to be weak. But everybody requires patience. Everybody. Um, you know, you could talk to my wife for five minutes and find all kinds of reasons how much patience is required with me. You could talk to me and find out how much patience is required with some of Courtney's kids from her first marriage. <laughs> but we all require patience, don't we? Right? This isn't, like, this isn't amazing instruction where we're like, oh, this is amazing. I never thought that everyone needed patience. Everyone knows we all need patience. And so Paul ends that sentence with, now listen, as you warn them, as you comfort them, and as you help them, they're going to need your patience. Have you ever helped somebody and you felt like they were stopping you from helping them and you almost wanted to be like, hey, would you relax? I'm helping you. Let me help you. What are you doing? I'm trying to help you. Um, I went to... Uh, Branson, Missouri recently. I went to Silver Dollar City and I got to uh, go on thrill rides with uh, two of my kids. Two of my kids love the exciting rides and I love it too. I'm afraid of heights, but I love, I love thrilling rides because I love it with them. And we got into one thing and one of my kids was like, uh, it's not working. I was like, relax, dude. They won't even let this thing go without it working. They're going to come by and they're going to check. It's not working. And so I reached over and I tried to help him with his buckle. And he was like trying to help too. And I'm like, no, 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 you're not helping. You're stopping me from clicking this in. And he kept on fumbling with it. And I just eventually said, you can't, don't touch it. Don't touch it. I did the dad card. Don't touch it. <laughs> and I tried to click it in. You know, everybody needs patience. Even when you're helping them, they need patience. And so be patient with everyone. That word for patience means to wait without complaint and, and help despite the difficulties. Wait without complaint despite the difficulties. It's going to be hard. It's going to require patience on a team that you're on, on your staff, on a board, on a, in an organization, in your family, at the holidays, at your in-law's house. It's, it's going to require patience. And God reminds us, listen, be patient with everyone. Have you ever had to wait on a slow driver in traffic? Um, one of the times that my patience is really required is whenever I'm like, there's a good picture. Uh, see how uh, everyone wants to kill that one guy in the front and everyone's uh, behind? There, there's been times where I'm on the interstate and uh, there's a truck, there's a semi. Of course, semis can't go up the hill fast. No one expects that, right? We love our truck driver friends. We don't expect you to go the speed limit when you're going up a hill. You're carrying a heavy load. You do that. What is hard to tolerate is when your buddy truck driver drives next to you at the same speed you're going, and no one can enjoy the fast lane. That's when we want to shoot people. That's, that's when it's like, that's when the blood pressure rises and the anger's there, and you're like, uh, Courtney, tell you, don't say, I, I, you should never say bad things about people. But sometimes when I'm driving and someone does something that's, super wrong. I mean, they're just, I wonder if they're even saved, but 
they cut me off or it's a truck driver in the left lane going as fast as the truck next to him and I think, you know what? You hate me. And I say it out loud. You hate me. Courtney's like, don't say that. And she's right. You shouldn't say that. Uh, or I say other things that are slanderous, not, not anything inappropriately bad, but I just think, oh, what is wrong with you? Why, how do you have a license? And I just daydream a melodrama in my head where, where that truck driver gets a flat and has to pull over immediately, and he feels bad and guilty about what he did, like the movie The Christmas Story, where he's, he's just sorry for what he did, and I should never drive in the left lane. That's inappropriate, and I should never do it. And I just, I imagine, I'm like, yes, you're right, truck driver, never do that again. I just imagine that thing, that scene of why? Because I'm being impatient. I'm being impatient, and I don't want to be behind someone going slower than I want to go. Well, there's many examples in life where we feel tempted to be impatient with our kids, with our loved ones, with drivers. It's hard to be patient. I recently heard a gray-haired man that I really respect. He's, he said this about patience. We were talking about the difficulties of disagreements and differences, and um, he said, you know, Jack, it doesn't get any easier the older you get. And that was real encouraging. I was like, thanks. <laughs> right, it's going to get harder than this? I'm ready to quit now. You're saying it's worse than this later? How is it worse than this? And he's like, yeah, and actually, the, the older I've gotten, the more stuck in my ways I want to be. And I was like, no, not you. You're awesome. Like, he's a great, great godly man. He's like, yeah, he said, you're always becoming more of who you already are. And it takes a great work of God and His grace to be changing you from the inside out. And uh, what a wise word from a wise old man. Older man. He's not old, but he's, you know, he's not young either, but he's older than me. Anyway, we all have weaknesses and struggles. Sometimes we're idle, and, and the command is clear. Be, warn those who are idle, comfort those who are discouraged or faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. Because if, if we don't, the church and the believer who doesn't follow 1 Thessalonians 5.14 tolerates the idol. Just tolerates the idol. You don't have to change. As long as you give money and as long as you don't cause any disruption, just I don't expect anything out of you. You just keep doing I'll just tickle your ears and tell you everything you want to hear. I'll never step on your toes. I'll never challenge you. Or they, they ignore the discouraged. They, they overlook the person next to them that, that's ready to give up and quit. We need to pray the prayer that Jesus prayed for Peter. Uh, Jesus told Peter, I, I prayed for you, Peter, that Satan would not sift you like wheat. The enemy wanted to destroy you, and I prayed that God would keep you from being destroyed. This is why people deconstruct their faith. They don't deconstruct their faith because the Bible isn't amazing. They deconstruct their faith because the people around them don't warn, comfort, encourage, or help them. That's why. They've missed out on the family relationship in church. If we don't, we're going to overlook the weak, disregard the weak. This is why we have ministries here. This is why we have the New Hope Shelter in town that we're connected to, and we believe in that ministry and the Heartland Pregnancy Center and other local events like the porch and norms. The, there's so many things that this church family is a part of in this neighborhood. Why? Because we, we believe that God is working in our community and we want him to bless people. And we want to encourage and comfort and reach out. We want to be a part of Newton and the surrounding towns. We love that God has placed us here on purpose. We want to be a church that does something. We want to do something. And we want to if we don't follow it, we become an impatient people. And we don't want to be an impatient people. Have you ever been around someone who was being impatient? The only thing you wanted to do was not be around them. 
Sometimes I'm impatient and I have to remember I'm so glad that God is patient with me. It's a great risk if we don't take 1 Thessalonians 5.14 seriously and we don't take these commands as real commands. We will be a dying church, a dying people, dysfunctional, weak. We need one another. We need each other. And 1 Thessalonians 5.14 is one of the ways that we love one another like a family. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your encouragement. I thank you for Paul's writings and the way that you, as Peter said, carried him along by the Holy Spirit, that you gave us your, your, your word that is so sure, that helps us. We know what you want. We know what you've said. Would you help us to grow uh, in these ways? Help us to warn the idle and comfort the discouraged and help the weak. Help us to be patient. Our heart's desire is that we would become more like you because this is how you have been with us. You have warned us, you have comforted us, you have helped us, and you have been so patient to draw us close to you. Would you help us to look more like you? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.